Okay, we're going to be in uh, Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy today, Deuteronomy 7. <clears throat> and actually, we're starting a new series this morning on the book of Joshua. So I know we're in Deuteronomy. Uh, it's a little bit of preface, a little bit of background. Um, all the things we're going to read from Deuteronomy today are going to become very real themes uh, that just pervade, seem to pervade the story of Joshua. So uh, that's why we're here. Uh, Deuteronomy, the book Deuteronomy means, if you were to translate Deuteronomy out of the Greek, it means repetition. The word is repetition. Because Deuteronomy is uh, a retelling of the story of God, how God saved Israel out from Egypt and brought them to the land of promise. It's a, a retelling of the law. Uh, the teachings of the law. It's, you might think of Deuteronomy this way, that it, towards the end of the life of Moses, he's with the people of God on the east side of the Jordan. They're getting ready to cross over. He's wedding, getting ready to go die. And before he does, he gives this sermon, which reminds them of where they've been and where they're going. He repeats the story. That's what Deuteronomy is. And in a lot of ways, I, I wanted to start here because we're going to come to Joshua and we're going to do the very same thing that Moses is doing in Deuteronomy. We're going to tell a story. Uh, we're going to examine a story of God's people. Uh, we're going to repeat it for ourselves and we're going to own it for our own. That's what, that's what Moses is trying to do with Deuteronomy. He's repeating the story to create a memory in the minds of people that is their own. And you might think, well, you, well, they actually could remember it. It's, you know, these things in the Bible are really not part of our memory per se. But you need to remember, by the time that Moses is out at the Jordan River, by the end of his life, there's almost nobody in the people of God who were around, like of adult age, to process their earlier history. There's, there's three. There's Joshua, Moses, and Caleb. That's it. So for the most part, I mean, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, when Moses says, remember when the Lord brought you out of Egypt? Many of the people would be like, mm, not really. Don't remember that. Or they were a wee lass. You know, I remember riding in the back, but my parents didn't tell me what was going on. I mean, they were young or they were not. And yet, Moses is going to be repeating this story in order to make it their own. And there's a way that we do that faithfully with the word. There's an important way that uh, this is why we, we retell the stories of scripture is to make them our own and to uh, find, find a commonality with the stories that went before us preach to us, which is a really big part of, uh, certainly is a very large premise of Hebrew scripture uh, is the power of the story. Um, we're going to look at three principles in Deuteronomy today, uh, but all of them are sort of beneath this idea of repeating in order to remember. So um, that's going to follow with us as well. But we'll be in Deuteronomy 7. And if you want to turn there, I'll get ready to read. Deuteronomy 1 through 4 is Moses retelling the story of, you know, we left the mountain. Uh, we, when we left Egypt, we came to the mountain, we received the law, we built the tabernacle. We left the mountain, 
We came up to the land of promise. We refused to enter in. God punished us with 40 years of wandering. At the 40th year of wandering, we came back to this place and have faithfully done what the Lord requires. So now we find ourselves at the threshold of the land of promise. That's Deuteronomy 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 5, he repeats the Ten Commandments. So there's this introduction to remember the teachings of God. Okay, Deuteronomy 6 says, So, don't stop telling the story. Tell it all the time. Tell it to your children. When you wake up, when you walk along the way, when you sit down, when you're out to work, write it on your door frames, put it on your foreheads, put it on your hands. Repeating the story until it is your own is extremely important. That's chapter 6. And 7 is, okay, so let's look forward. You're getting ready to go. Here's what you need to know. That's the setting here. Let me read the first 11 verses of Deuteronomy 7. Moses says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall not make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash to pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. For the Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Okay, so there we are. This is the first word in Moses' long sermon of Deuteronomy where he says, I'm turning you now. You're facing west. You're looking at the promised land. You're about to go in. And he kind of starts by declaring the impossible is going to happen. He says, you're going to go in there and the Lord's going to deliver up to you seven nations that are all stronger than you and mightier than you. Okay, so when the impossible happens, 
This is the command he gives. It's in verse 2. He says, completely destroy them. No treaty. No mercy. No fellowship. No compromise. Now, one of, the real, one of the most important reasons for repeating old stories and making them our own is it forces us to reconcile things that are pretty hard, maybe, to our ears. As long as you can keep an arm's distance to this, you can kind of convince yourself that there's two different kinds of God. There's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. But if it is our story, now we, have to, we really have to work this out. What does he mean here? Why? Let's ask Why do we show no mercy? Why must we devote them to destruction, is the literal Hebrew. Make them whole, set them apart for destruction, is the idea. And the answer is in verse 4. Because if you don't, your children will take on their practices and become just like them. And the Lord says, and when that happens, I will destroy your children. You see here, this is not, it's not that God hates Girgashites and God hates Jebusites and Hivites. That has nothing to do with it. That has nothing at all to do with it. God hates evil. God hates wickedness. God hates cruelty. Those are the kinds of things God hates. And inside the walls and inside the lives of these people is so much cruelty and hatred and wickedness that he's saying there's simply no way that you can be next to them and neighborly to them and without destroying yourselves. You think of COVID, right? What they have is so contagious, you will get it. And what they have is so deadly, it will kill you. That's what, that's what the Lord is saying. It's a helpful, it's a maybe a helpful, right? We've never had this much of a kind of a quarantined perspective of life. But that's what the word of God is saying is, is you can't make a risk assessment like you do with COVID. You know, I'm young and healthy and I have things to do that are important. So here's the, you know, I look at the risks and the payoffs and I go, this is the kind of life I'm able to live based upon my health and my age. And I can do this, but you know, for the sake of others, I won't do that. He says, you can't do that here. You can't do that here. You will catch it and it will kill you. That's what he's saying. There's no one immune, and it's highly dangerous. Let's make this a principle, okay? So let's like lift it out of the story and just make it a, a principle for the life of the Jesus follower here. This is it. The enduring promises of God among his people are predicated on the notion that we have a very sober view of how morally frail we are. Our moral frailty is extreme, understanding our moral frailty and honoring it is extremely important for the life God intends for us. And not only are we morally frail, but we're extremely fragile across generations. This is something that we don't really think this way anymore. We think about our lives all the time, but we don't really think about the continuum of our ancestry. But the Lord, time in and time out, again and again, he repeats and reiterates, listen, if you do this, your children will do this. The next generation will do this. People will come after you who do this. If you slip, they will fall. That is so painfully obvious in these, these 
these scriptures, it's, it's, it's hurtful to think about how optimistic we are about ourselves. What he's saying here is, is be, recognize your moral frailty, your moral frailty. And again, I want to just say, it's not, it's not the fact that he dislikes one people over another. In fact, verses five and six are helpful for this. He says, Here, here's what you need to do. Here's what you really need to do. You need to break down their altars, dash to pieces their pillars, tear down their ashram, and burn their car- carved images. You see how it's very spiritual for him. He's looking at the life they're living and saying that cannot continue. If it does, it'll kill you. The whole time we're going to be in the book of uh, Joshua, I'm going to be encouraging to think about, the, the phrase I'm going to use is, think about your boundaries or your borders. Okay, Joshua is a story about God bringing his people into a land and assigning them, here's your boundaries, here's your land, and he does it for, for Israel, he does it for the tribes, he does it for the clans, the people. I mean, so eventually you're down to families with the, their property markings. What I want to ask, I'm going to just say to you, what, what are the boundary lines what are your property lines in your life? And when I say that, what I'm going to be, what I mean is, in your world, what are the things you're responsible for? What are the things you interact with? What are the, what are the, what's the realm that you have choice? I'm not trying to get you to solve world peace or universal justice or really big problems. I'm saying inside your tiny borders, what are you responsible to and for? That's what God's talking about here. He's saying, in that lane, you need to realize that without me, you're morally frail, and with me, you would be obedient. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't compromise with these things. And I just want to ask you, within your borders, are there things that God wants you to expel? That you've kept around, thinking, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. I'm mostly good. It makes me laugh. Most of the episodes I watch are pretty good. It's just every now and then. Yeah, I know they talk that way, but they don't mean it. If I were to push back on that, man, it would be a lot of friction at work. It might, it might cost me something. Is there something. Is there something in your land that the Lord wants you to expel? That's the question. Maybe you've been negotiating with it a little too long. Let's look at the next section. I'm going to read 12 through 16. It's a more hopeful section. In fact, it's going to start off, and the Lord, kind of theoretically, is just going to assume they're going to be obedient. So the premise in 12 through 16 is that, of course, they're going to do what he says. So look at 12. He says, and because you listen to these rules and keep... Uh, and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock, and the land that he swore to, give, uh, to your fathers to give. You shall be blessed above all peoples. 
There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among the livestock, and the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall they serve their God. You should, so you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Notice how he ends the same way. Hey, don't forget. He, so he puts this, this picture of the good life out. He says, hey, the good life is waiting for you. I'll be faithful to you if you'll be faithful to me. It's full of hope, full of hope. I'll be, I will be faithful to you if you will merely be faithful to me. But, but listen, you gotta do what I'm telling you to do. Otherwise, it'll be a snare for you. This will all fall down. But he gives them this, this really awesome picture of a good life. Fruitful, lively, healthy, he says, to those who follow me, I'll care for them. That's the idea, right? If you take care to follow God, God will take care of you. That's what he's saying here. Sometimes we get this uh, teachings like this, get a little bit squirrely because we turn these into sort of if-then prospects where our affection or attention is really on the wrong thing. Like what we really, really want is is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So we're saying, so you're telling me if I do this, you'll give me that. That's not how we're supposed to hear this, okay? The, the goal is not supposed to be the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. The, this is supposed to be said in a sense of hope and encouragement of, hey, continue in faithfulness and trust that I'll take care of you in the end. That's, that's the tenor. That's, that's how it's supposed to lay down on us. God knows what you need, in other words. God knows what you need and he understands the definition of the good life for you. Jesus, at one point in his ministry, he's trying to encourage people not to worry. And he says, listen, consider the sparrows. God takes care of them. Consider the lilies of the field. God, God takes care of them. God knows what you need. Be faithful. I was trying to think about where does this go wrong sometimes. <clears throat> and I came up with uh, three ways that this can go wrong, this idea of faithfulness in the good life. The first way is pretty obvious, which is when you want, when your definition of the good life is different than God's definition of the good life, this goes south. In other words, and I think we can all identify with this, there are things in the land that the Lord hates. There's things in our boundary that the Lord hates, but we love and we want He's saying tear things down and we're like, do we really? But I don't want to tear it down. I don't want to tear it down. Idolatry, idolatry, the, the principle of idolatry is it's giving you access to your definition of the good life apart from God. That's what the idolatry is doing. So there are things in our land, I, I would presume as a general rule, each one of us, if we were to stop to think there's things in our life that we actually are describing for ourselves as the good life, which God actually despises. He despises. And that's a kind of an irreconcilable subject. You are going to have a continual impediment of becoming faithful because every step of faithfulness you do brings you farther away from the thing you want. You see how irreconcilable that is? 
Here's another way that this goes wrong. What if your definition of the good life is mediocre? You know, I was thinking, Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they were slaves. They were slaves. It's not like they need palaces. It's not like they need cable. Can you imagine how, if they just had a house and a field to till and a few goats and some sheep, they might say, well, this is the good life. This, this is enough for me. There's a sense where you could have such a, a relaxed view of what God actually wants to do what he actually intends to do for you, that such a mediocre view of God's will for your life, that it it itself becomes an impediment. It's not so much that you're heading towards something bad. It's that you have such a low view of what God wants to do. This, in fact, is going to be the chief reason, I think, for the difficulties of Israel, is their their mediocre view of God's will. I wonder if that's uh, one of the chief challenges of the church today is we kind of manage to cobble together for us a good enough life. Yeah, well, this is the good life. I'm happy. This is the good life. I have it. I have it. In such a way that stunts our faithfulness to the Lord. The problem with good enough, right? Uh, problem with good enough is it's always within arm's reach. It never really requires any sacrifice. I'm a good enough person, by the way. Drives my wife crazy. I'm the sort of student I can get an 85%, 100% of the time. I've never seen 100. Why? 85% is good enough. That's the, that's, uh, you know, some of us have this mentality. It's just... Um, steadfastness is not our mark. God is calling for steadfast faithfulness, trusting that at the end is the really good life. That sort of leads to the third way that this can go south. This can go south for us, this idea of the good life, when it becomes our focus, not faithfulness. So the first way this goes wrong is if we have the wrong definition of the good life. And the second way is if we have a mediocre definition of the good life. But what if you actually have this really uh, awesome picture of the good life, but it's your focus, not faithfulness. The good life is your focus. That totally bypasses faithfulness. What that, that makes you, this, is the most, this can be the most insidious because you, everything you're heading after and everything you're drawn to is a defendable good thing. This is the stuff that hides in, well, isn't it appropriate to have an important retirement plan? I, I just want to be able to take my family on the occasional vacation. Is it too much to ask to be in a good school district? You see how, how we can virtue signal the good life all day long. And if we're not careful, it is our focus. It's what we're heading towards. I'm going to say a phrase and I'm even going to do a survey. If, if you're under... I want to be right, so I got to be careful here. If you're under 25, have you ever heard of layaway? Raise your hand if you've heard of layaway. How about 30? You've heard of layaway? Okay. If, it's a pretty obscure thing, I think, though. Layaway. When I was growing up, we had layaway. Do you guys remember layaway? I'm looking at older folks. We had layaway. 
And what layaway was, you wanted something, but you couldn't afford it. So you would go to the JCPenney's and you needed a stroller because, you know, you're, someone was pregnant. You wanted to get the good stroller, but it was like 250 bucks. And you couldn't pay that. So you'd say to the clerk, this is the one I want. And he would put a tag on it. You remember this? He put a tag on it. He would physically remove it from the floor. He'd put it on a shelf in the back with, with your name on it. And then what you could do is you could come in week over week and month over month and put money down against it. That's how layaway worked. They would lay it away. And when you finally did all the work and paid all the costs, then they would give it to you. So that we have entirely left the culture of layaway and we have entered into the culture of credit, which is actually, no, I want the good life now. I'll pay for it later. But just give me the good life now. This is, I just want to tell us, I, I want to just repeat that because this idea is so countercultural to our ears. It's so countercultural to our ears, which is what God wants from us is to be faithful now. Just be faithful now, trusting that a good life beyond what you can imagine is waiting for you. Beyond what you can imagine. Jesus, the blood of Jesus Christ is the faithful down payment for a good life you neither deserve or could ever earn. And it should be enough to call us to faithfulness. Here and now. I want to ask you to consider the things inside your borders. You know, the nature of, of uh, your life. You may be heading towards good things. My question, my question would be, what are you staring at constantly? That begins to tell us something. What are you staring at all the time? What's the goal for you? Is it possible that you've fallen in love with something God hates? That kind of puts us back to the first idea of, hey, if we don't hate what God hates, we're in trouble. It will kill us. The word destruction is a regular word in this chapter. Destruction follows. Or is it that you've sort of just negotiated in this life a sort of cheese ball good life that's just good enough now. And I just want to say, that's not the scenario where the Lord meets us at the end with great life. He might meet you with destruction. That's what we call lukewarm. Or do you want really, really good things? But that's your focus. It's there's a lot of hope in this section, so I don't want to make this just a pure conviction. The hope is, hey, faithful people, be faithful and God will take care of you. God will really take care of you. That's the promise of God. He loves you. Okay, one last reading. Verse 17. <clears throat> now we're going to get real to how people really feel about this entering the land. He says, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples whom you, of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. 
You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. So here's the Joshua question that you will, I I hope and trust you'll find yourself acting. Who's taking the land, the people or God? It's God is saying, go take it. And he's saying, when you go take it, I'll take it. It's a, I find mystery in this. I find mystery. This, I grew up with statements like pray like it's up to God, work like it's up to you, which I find that to be problematic. But, but it, it's found, the mystery of this is found here. I'm sending you into the land. It's going to be hard. There are nations bigger than you and mightier than you. You ought not to be able to take them. I'm sending you into the land. And with your hands and your sword and your effort and your sweat, day in and day out, I'll give it to you. And it's like, well, wait a second. <laughs> Sounds like I'll give it to me. And the Lord says, be faithful. I'll give it to you. I say it this way because for some people, we don't set out on against things because we feel like, well, we're too small to conquer them. To which he said, what the Lord does here, the whole purpose of this last section is to bring to memory, to our memory. This is why we repeat to remember. He's bringing to our memory when he's acted on our behalf in the past. And he's saying, didn't I do that? Well, won't I do this? Right? When we think it's just us, we look in and we see something that's larger than us. And we think, well, how can I even do that? And he's saying, listen, it's not just you. I am in your midst, was verse 21. I am, the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God is the phrase. He's in your midst. Go in. You're not alone. And in some mysterious way, you are not doing it. The true might is the Lord's. By the way, this is why I think it's important to retell stories. Not just the Christmas story. That's probably the one we retell the most, Christmas and Easter. Uh, Though... I think those are the, you know, I think Easter is the most important story to tell here, but to retell all of these stories as though they're our own. Our God brought us up out of Egypt. Our God parted the sea. Our God fed us with manna. Our God led us through the wilderness. Our God parted the Jordan. Our God made the walls of Jericho fall down. Our God slew Goliath. Our God protected Shadrach and Meshach in the fiery furnace. Our God saved Daniel. Our God fed Elijah. Our we, we need to say this. These are our stories. Because the more of them you have and believe, the more faithfully you can step into things that look larger than you. Our God raised his son Jesus from the dead. Our God did that. I want to entertain one thought here, which might, <clears throat> someone might have, which is something like this. Well, I hear you, John, but I've been fighting in my boundaries in my land. I've been fighting for years. I wake up, I fight the same thing, the same demon, the same sin, the same thing. I know the Lord hates it. And I'm fighting just to hate what the Lord hates, but I, I am working hard to be faithful and yet I don't feel victory. 
I want to read you two verses. Look at verse 22. I'm going to read this. This to me is, uh, has become the coolest idea in this chapter and it is the most mysterious. So I'm going to be able to describe something I cannot explain. Verse 22, the Lord your God will clear away these nations before you. Listen, little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. Little by little. Why? Why little by little? Because if you were to have rapid victory, something else would enter the void that would become maybe even a more significant problem. Now, this is where I can describe something. I cannot fully explain it. Meaning, I can't look at your life and let you know that that's the reason. But what I can say here is this, is God is saying to people, you might be entirely faithful in what I call you to do. You might be completely faithful, super awesome faithful. You might be my favorite clan in all of Israel that faithfully wakes up and goes down and fights the same village day in and day out for generations two, three generations. It might take your people 70 years to eradicate that evil from the land. And you're going to wonder day after day, is it something you're doing wrong? Why are you, are you, I thought God was with me. Is God not with me? Does God not love me? And he, and he might say, and the great mystery is in my loving mercy for you, I'm making it slow. The mercy of God may be what's making your victory slow in coming. Did you ever think about that? Did you ever think about that? You know, we make, a, we make a mistake. We make a mistake in the church of saying victory is the chief metric to judge faithfulness. It's not. Faithfulness is the metric to judge faithfulness. That's it. Faithfulness is the metric to judge faithfulness. I, we don't, you don't have to be victorious quickly. You, if you could be victorious slow, slowly, that we might not ever see it. It does not mean God isn't with you. In fact, God might be with you. In fact, it, God might be orchestrating the drudgery of your battle out of his loving mercy for you. That's what this is saying. It's out of his care for you. That if, What if you were to get such quick victory over that that you were swamped with pride? Pride is the greatest beast in all of the land. Again, I can't explain it. Like you can't, don't come up to me afterwards and say, is this it? I don't know. This, this, whole, this whole idea is laced in the mystery of God. But this is what I do know. The Lord, our God is in our midst and he's a great and awesome God. He's a great and awesome God. And you know what he calls you to do? He says, hate the things I hate. Fight against the things I told you to fight against. And I'll take care of your good life. And every one of us knows this, right? To call ourselves followers of Jesus and sons of God knows that we have the good life waiting. It's waiting for us. It's without blemish. It's without critique. It's everything, it's better. Our feeble minds cannot conceive the good life that the Lord has prepared for those who love him. For now, be faithful. Be faithful. Whether it's slow or fast, he's in your midst. In fact, he's ultimately the one who's going to do it. There's going to be parts and times in our life where we realize, 
I, we were laboring and failing because we were laboring alone. But then when the Spirit of God shows up, there's times where we experience victory. And I can't explain, I cannot explain the Lord. Praise God, He's greater than we are. But He's, he's here. This is going to be the book of Joshua. These themes are going to surface time in and time out. And we're going to be, uh, I'm going to continually challenge you to go in your tiny little world, the world inside your borders, what are the things God wants to talk to you? I'm sure, I'm sure none of us walked in this morning in 2021 with everything figured out. He's got to have something to say. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. Maybe we'll spend this last few minutes just um, doing our own form of inauguration, inaugurating this, um, this, this, this conversation with the Lord about the land. I want you, just now, I want you to think about what is your territory as it relates to the Lord? The people you're responsible for the influences you endure day in and day out, the choices that you're free to make, the forces of good and evil that push on your household, the role you play in all of this. And I just want to start with the first question, which is, is it possible that you've come into a land and you've made peace with something that God has, wants you to make no peace with at all? In fact, it will kill you. Like, is that your prayer this morning, Lord? Help me to embrace my moral frailty and the generational fragility. Lord, maybe I might slip, but I might make my children fall. I even want us just to think with an encouraged heart of what God says about be faithful and the good life will follow. What, what, are, what are we doing with the good life? Are we, are we heading after the wrong life or the right life the wrong way? Or have we just negotiated, eh, this is good enough. Because the Lord's plan is to be brilliantly faithful to you who are faithful to him. And finally, I just want to help you come before the Lord with things in your life. Maybe you feel too small to affect. And I, I just want to remind you from the word, the Lord your God is in your midst. He'll do it. You step into it and he'll do it. And maybe it might take you your whole life. Please him. Lord, that's our prayer. May we please you with where we put our feet. with where we set our gaze, with where we hang our heart, with how we fashion our words. Because we are to be to you a holy people. And we're not that yet, Lord. We're morally frail, but you're making us holy. May it be so, Lord. We pray this in the great and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.